I went to a uh, conference about three weeks ago. It was, uh, it was a good experience. Um, Julia and I uh, traveled there, connected with some old friends, learned some things. Um, it was good. It was encouraging. My main takeaway, though, which was not at all the subject of the conference, it was kind of a side note that one of the speakers brought out. My, my main personal takeaway from that conference was that I really need to work on thankfulness, which is a strange thing. Uh, one of the speakers was making a point that I don't quite remember actually what the point was, but he asked us, as we were seated around these tables of eight throughout a pretty big room, to think about something you're thankful for, anything, and you know, not necessarily something spiritual, just anything. Think of something that you're thankful for. And then talk with one another at your table about it and share it with other people. And so I'm, I'm sitting there and I, I, I had nothing. There was, there was nothing coming to mind. I'm like, I know there's things to be thankful for. And, and I'm just vapor locked. There, there were absolutely nothing coming to mind as the time is drawing near when everyone else has obviously got something in mind and they're going to start sharing it around the table. And I was feeling terrible because I, I knew how thankfulness is, is really important. It's, there's so many benefits to thankfulness. I've read the articles about it, the blog posts, the research that say, you know, you're, you're happier, you have stronger relationships, you're more fulfilled, more cooperative, patient, trusting. You know, I even made my kids watch that old movie, Pollyanna. Do you remember that movie? Right? She's playing the glad game, finding things to be thankful for. And here I am with nothing. And they start sharing around the table. And praise the Lord, the person to my right started and they went to the left around the table. But the time was coming and Julia was on my left. And I'm thinking, he only said five minutes. Surely it's been five minutes. So she's starting to share. And the speaker says, okay, we, we, we need to wrap it up. And then I had something to be thankful for. <laughs> so as we come to this passage here in, in Exodus chapter 20, we're looking at just verses 1 through 3 of, of, of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. Uh, there's an interesting connection to my experience with thankfulness. And what, what I've learned even in this last week or so from that experience. We're going to pick up our study in Exodus 20, and there's this, this major connection that I want us to dig out as we look at God's Word here in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. God's holy Word. Uh, would you read along with me? Then God spoke all these words, saying, I I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is God's word. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your encouragement and hope and the gracious promises, even of your law. Would you open our eyes, our ears, our hearts to the truth of who you are and how you are working 
all things for good. Uh, Would you meet us here, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. So based on that experience I had at that conference, uh, I wanted to be thankful for more than the fact that I didn't have to share and be embarrassed at my table. So I I found a template and kind of modified a little bit for a weekly planner, and I've been kind of doing a weekly planner thing for a while, and I, I, I added onto it a spot for three things to be thankful for, one, two, and three with a blank line next to it. And I sat down earlier this week And I was going to find things to be thankful for because I knew they were out there. And I started by looking at my my calendar on my phone, you know, and my appointments and things from the last week. And very quickly, I ran out of space on that piece of paper. I, I had not only three, but I had six things within five minutes and without much thought and effort. And so I was encouraged by that. And I, just, I want to I share just some of the things that were on here a little bit. I, one of the things was my family. We, we, we had a fun outing, and we went to a soccer game. And, and our team won. And it was fun, right? We, we, uh, I had a really hard conversation in the last couple of weeks. But I realized that God had prepared me with various trainings that I handled that conversation way different than I would have 10 years ago because God has been training and working in me. I, I, I was thankful that Julia and I got to go to the Van Gogh immersive experience over here at the Tower Theater. Uh, it was fun spending time with her and seeing this artwork and learning the story about Van Gogh a little more. Uh, I, I was thankful that one of my children got the knack of riding SEPTA pretty quickly, and so I didn't have to go with them anymore, and they could go on their own. I was thankful that Rosie and Anne have rocked, and the Lord has provided for the preschool, and we have a ton of registrations, and the enrollment is way up, and God is just at work there, so obviously. And, and the last thing that I, I stopped with this one is, I was thankful for apple cobbler with vanilla ice cream. (laughs) And I didn't really have anywhere else to go from there. I mean, that apple, hot apple cobbler with vanilla ice cream. Even the next day, and the next day after that, because I hid some of it from the children, I had it for a couple of more days. (laughs) And even microwaving the apple cobbler and putting the ice cream on it was still so good. Oh. I was very thankful. And now here's what happened, though. After that, right, those things, I jotted them down, and there was more to it, and I'll share that in a minute, but something, something happened. I, I began to just spontaneously thank God for those things. Like, I was thankful for them personally, and I said, you know what, thank you, God, for each of these things. And as I began thanking him for those things, more, more things came to mind and something even more powerful happened, something profound, because I realized that every one of those little things was evidence, proof, that God was working in my life in ways that I don't deserve. I, I, at the same, I was humbled, and yet I, I, God was greater And yet I was also lifted up. I became less and more at the same time. 
And I was literally moved to tears as I reflected on these things. And I realized what is kind of the, the fundamental underlying truth that I want you to take away from this passage today is that acknowledging God's role in your life is what He wants, first of all. Acknowledging God's role in your life is what He wants, first of all. When He says, you shall have no other gods. He wants you to acknowledge His role in your life. That He is working for good. And one of the great problems we have is that the, the most common other God in our lives is just me, myself, and I. It is an absorption with ourselves and our problems that we, that we never get beyond thinking about those to recognize that God is at work. That there aren't just problems, that there are wonderful blessings and provisions that God is working in your life, in my life. And the interesting thing I realized this week as I was processing all that is that you actually overcome these other gods when you actively work on noticing the ways that the true God is working in your life. You will overcome those other gods, those temptations, when you recognize that God is working in your life. And you find those ways and you, you notice them. So here's the thing, these first two commands, the first one in verse 3, you shall have no other gods. The second one, you shall not, how does he put it? I don't want to mess it up. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness thereof. Right? So no other gods, no idols. They're, they're obviously very closely related. The first commandment there, no other gods, is, is emphasizing who the true God is. And the second one leans toward emphasizing how you serve that true God. And we'll unpack that more, Lord willing, next week. And again, they're very closely related, so some things this week hit next week, and some things next week will amplify what we're talking about this week. But that, that reality, right, that if, if, you, if you will actively work on noticing, acknowledging the ways that God is at work, you will fulfill this commandment. Because he is at work. Because he's actually at work for your good. And so as we, as we dig into that, acknowledging that he's working in your life for your good is, is acknowledging that that's who God is. And to kind of help motivate us, to help kind of get us into that, that's what I want to emphasize in this, in this message this week. And what we're going to unpack is this idea of well, who is this God? Who is this God? First of all, this, the true God is, is above. The true God is, is above. Above everything. He is the power. Right, we see that in this passage in verse 1, in verse 2, in verse 3, with a simple three-letter little word there, God. Right? He says, God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, verse 3, you shall have no other gods. 
That word in the Hebrew is Elohim, which you may have heard of. And it is kind of the generic word for God, and it is used of false gods. It is used of actually even human leaders uh, who rule and are above other humans, judges, those kind of things. It gets a little confusing that way. But it is emphasizing, this word emphasizes that aboveness, that power, that over sense. You can see it in so many ways that, that this is the word used of the God who created all things in Genesis chapter 1. And God said, let there be light. And he said, let us make man in our image. This is the great God. This is the God who does wonders. This is the God of gods. This is the God of the spirits of all flesh. This is God most high. This is the God of all the earth. The God of all flesh. The God of heaven. The mighty one. He is God almighty. Higher. Above. Power. Ruling. In fact, you see that in context here because what has happened with the people of Israel most recently in their life? They have been delivered from Pharaoh who thought himself to be a god and who said, I don't know your god. You're not going to go worship him. Get back to work. And the true god showed his power over the false gods of Egypt with those ten plagues, striking the god of the Nile, the, the god of the field in abundance, the god of animal life, the god of the air, the god of the sun, bringing darkness, all of those things that God showed his power over all of those other gods. And ultimately, over Pharaoh himself, striking the the firstborn son of Pharaoh. That's, that's the God in view here when he says, I am the Lord your God, have no other gods. It also has this sense of that he's not only, you know, he's, he's the power, he is also the purpose. He is as the higher power, as the creator, as the one who is outside, he is the one who brings meaning. Do you realize without some overarching God and power, we really have nothing else to bring meaning. We really are just stuff. Right? If there is no God who stands above and outside, then we're just material. We're atoms, molecules. There's no reason for love. There's no reason for hope. There's no reason to think things will change. There really is only survival of the fittest. There's no standard. There's nothing outside. Right? So that's, that's part of the sense here that this God above all else, He is the purpose. He's the creator. And so as He says, you shall have no other gods before Me. He means, in a sense, believe that I am the mighty one in your life. Acknowledge that I alone am above all powers that I rule, in a sense. And it's safe to say of God, as you would say of no one else, that it really is all about Him. He created it all. He made it all. He sustains it all. That's this God. But that's only part of the story. 
the second major component is that not only is the true God above, but the true God is near. He is at the same time above and mighty and high, but he's also near. He is personal and relational. He's personal and relational. He uses, in our passage, personal pronouns, right? He says in verse 2, I. He says in verse 3, me. He has a name, verse 2, Yahweh. We don't have time to get into that, but that's how he wants to be called. Exodus 3, Exodus 6. God says that's the name. Yahweh. I am that I am. We'll talk about that more, Lord willing, next week. That's, he's personal. He's relational. He's got a name. You can address him. You can talk to him. He's not just some vague higher power. He is personal. He's you. You can address him. He's, he created all things. And in fact, it's safe to say they created all things. Because in a mysterious way that we can't get our finite minds around is that this God is one God and yet three persons. He said, let us make humanity in our image, which is, could be a royal we, but as we read through the Scriptures, we learn that this God is, is actually three persons, that they are in relationships. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. Yet they are one God. They are in relationship. They didn't need to make us. They chose to make us. And to bring into that perfect harmony of those three persons this dysfunction of seeing a creation turn aside and reject a relationship with them when they had shown only love and concern and compassion. He's not only got pronouns and three persons and a name, but he speaks. Verse 1, he spoke all these words. He, he knows their language. He knows all of our languages. He understands and hears. He speaks. He spoke and there was light. And he enters into relationships. Verse 2, how does he put it? You shall have... No, oh, sorry, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me or in my presence that, that you have to have a relationship with me and me alone. God wants exclusivity. God wants a monogamous relationship, a one-on-one -on -one relationship. He wants no other. He is a, we'll see in a couple of weeks, jealous God. That means that He protects and values a relationship with you. And He wants nothing else to stand between the two of you. He's, you are to have no other gods. This one is your God. He, he created. He enters into relationships. That's why He created. If you look at that Genesis account again, Genesis 1 and 2, it's so clear that He is making just this wonderful piece of uh, art, this work of creation, and, and He's filling it up 
and he gets to the end and is to put humanity in it, a man and a woman, that they would take care of it. And the man and the woman alone are the ones who are ruling over and exercising dominion and in a relationship with him. He's not talking to the animals. He's talking to the humans. And he's entrusted them with this role that mirrors his own role over everything. They, then, are over the rest of creation. That's why he made them. And he would walk, in in Genesis 2, we see he would walk in the garden with them. He would talk with them before the fall. He made this place, his personal relationship, personal and relational, right? He, He wants good for those that he's in a relationship with. He, he made this world at the perfect spot. Do you know how miraculous it is that the earth would be where it is? You know, it is at the perfect place for life. A little closer to the sun, a little further to the sun, you know, we're burning or we're freezing. We're dead. That's what he made. But he not only made that, which is kind of cold and analytical, he made these trees upon which grow these red or green objects that if you pluck one of them at the right time and you cut it up and you take out the little seeds and if you take those seeds and you put them in the ground they'll grow another one of these things but if you take that one thing and you take those other things that grow in the field and you harvest them and you crush them up and you mix them together and if you take some of the water that he's scattered throughout this world. And if you add a little heat and a couple of other ingredients from these animals that just are there, and if you do the right thing, they provide for you milk that you can turn into butter or cream or ice cream. (laughs) Because there's this other thing that grows, and inside of it is this sweet stuff that you can pull out of there and you can mix it together with the other stuff. And you bring all that together and, and you get apple cobbler. <laughs> and you put the ice cream on it. That's not man-made. It's like man re-put together in. Is that not a good God who would make a world like that? It would sustain a world like that where you could just go get a peach off of a tree or grapes off of a vine. And they taste good. And you think about whatever food you like. But that's this God, right? He's near. You know, he's, he's thought of what you want, what would delight you. But, but he's not only this near, relational, and personal He's not just relational and personal. He's not merely powerful, right? He's also a redeemer and savior. Not merely a provider. And do you realize that he has provided all those things for the good and the wicked? For the righteous and the unjust. Every one of us can go out to that tree and get something good off of it like that. But he's also not merely provided, but he is the redeemer and savior. Look at what it says there again in verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In case you forgot, that means I brought you out of the house 
of slavery. He said back in Exodus 19, I carried you on eagles' wings. I struck down all of the false gods of Egypt. And every time Pharaoh resisted my will, God says, I struck down another god. Again and again and again. But yet in the midst of that, I provided for you, my people. They had darkness throughout the land of Egypt, but you in the land of Goshen had light. They had plagues and pestilences. They had water turning to blood, but you in your land, you had good and healthy life. And God kept doing that to bring out His people, to show who He is. Not merely to demonstrate His power over all things, but to say, I am a God who is near. And I will save people. I will redeem them. I will bring them out because that's who I am. They don't deserve it. And they showed that throughout the whole exodus as they come out and got to this point. They've been grumbling and complaining and saying, let's go back. It was better. Looking back with those rose-colored glasses saying, you know, you brought us out just to kill us. He still continues to bring them out. And in the midst of that, not just providing for those people in that time, not just saving and redeeming and bringing them out, but showing every single person who reads the story the way that He would provide for every person who would trust in Him. That He would send someone to be that Passover lamb. That one who would take death that we might be set free. The one whose blood over the doorposts would cause the death angel to pass over because the sacrifice was paid. The debt was covered. In the midst of all of those plagues, there was this thread of redemption, of the Lord working in their lives not just as a powerful one, but as the one who is near to save, to rescue, to help, to be with. Not just with them even, but then to be with us, to show us the way that He would provide. That the ultimate work would come where this one who is a Savior and Redeemer, not merely a provider who would bring about a way of salvation, that in the fullness of time, Jesus would come. That this one who is above all, who is powerful and mighty, would come down near and walk among us, remaining God and taking on humanity at the same time in this mysterious way. That He would speak and teach and do what is right and good and only, always love God and love His neighbor and show what that would look like. And everyone followed Him. And everyone listened to Him. No. That he would be rejected and despised, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He would be nailed to a cross bearing a crown of thorns, tortured to death. But 
because He is both this God who is above, because He is this God of power and might, death could not hold Him. Death could not prevail. Sin and judgment could be fulfilled that all of your guilt and your shame, all of your rejection, all of your sorrows could be born, buried, and set aside. Because He's come down as the God who is above yet near and with His people to rise victorious over those things that He has finished the work. That's, that's who He is. That's what He has wanted to do and what He has provided. It's part of the fabric of reality. It is the nature of the world He has created because it's rooted in who God is. That's the way He made the world. And we see those echoes of it. You, 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 the, the most popular stories, the ones that resonate with us and stand the test of time are those ones where someone does good on behalf of others. The, the heroes that we recognize are those who sacrifice and lay down their lives. Why is that? It's because we all know that's who God is. He is that one who, when he has all of the gifts and power and might, doesn't stay alone by himself, but enters into the mess and the muck to save and rescue. That he goes down to the depths to bring you up. When you're dead, you are dead. And he comes to bring you life. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. And it's from that place where you, you, you gain this thankfulness, this true gratitude that doesn't try to pay back, but just says, oh my God, you did this for me. For me. With this unbelievable and it's true. This is what he's done. This is who he is. This power and provision, relationship, personal, relational God, Redeemer, Savior. That's, that's a part of the fabric. So what do you do with that? I looked at my thankful list and a couple of them, I had explicitly put something like, I enjoyed going to the, uh, the Van Gogh exhibit with Julia, despite the torrential downpours. We went Thursday around lunchtime, Thursday at 1. Do you remember what was happening Thursday at 1 a week ago? Not this past Thursday? The remnants of one of the hurricanes was coming through. And it was, it wasn't just raining. We were like in water the whole way. My feet were drenched, my socks, my shoes. We didn't have an umbrella in the car. Well, we had some trash bags, so we went with the trash bag poncho route. You ever done that? If you cut it just right, you can put it, you know. And that made us a little drier. Despite that, even walking through that exhibit with wet feet, it was good. 
the, the preparation I had for the hard conversation came from my recognition in the past of failures and brokennesses. Literally at the depths when I reached out 10 years ago, I was ministered to and built up. And those cycles happen. And the things that I have learned from them and through them as other people have ministered have equipped me so that despite that pain and that hardship, I could be different and in interacting with someone else. We went to the game together as a family, and it was great and fun, despite the fact that we left 40 minutes later than I wanted to, and I was miserable for the first 20 minutes or so when we got there. But I didn't even remember that. And I unpacked, every one of those six things had some significant, despite this, it was good, and I am thankful for it. That is redemption. That is what is there. That is the secret. That is why it is so necessary for you to find things that you are thankful for and to ponder them and embrace at the same time what the despite this or that is because that's there too. It's always going to be in this fallen world and our great hope and promise is there will come a day when Jesus will raise the dead and wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more hospitals, no more cancer, no more diagnoses of death and destruction, no more calamities, no more hurricanes, tornadoes, none of that. It will all pass away. But until that day comes, every single experience you have is going to be marked by something where you can say, despite that, God was still working. And hone in on that thing that God is doing. Take some time this week. Look at your calendar if you have one. Look at the things you've done this past week. Take an inventory of, of the people in your life and think through your interactions with them. Your workplace, your neighborhood, your, your, your grocery list, the things you've eaten. Find those things. Oh, by the way, that was one thing I didn't find any despite this and that. Apple cobbler with vanilla ice cream. I couldn't find any negative. Maybe if I eat too much. But I'm not there yet. Well, I'm already there. Whatever. But uh, there wasn't any kind of taint to apple cobbler and vanilla ice cream. Everything else, there's going to be this taint. Think about it. It's built into the fabric of reality because of who God is. Because God made a world where He knew there would be sin happening. He's not responsible for the sin. You and I are. And God knew that it would require His own initiative and work to bring something good out of it. And He does that over and over again. Most obviously there in the Passover and the plagues, right? Bringing about through the death and destruction, the pointer to Jesus and then Jesus himself, the rejection, the crown of thorns, the death and torture. Bringing about in that most horrible, the most horrible event in the history of the world, God brought about the greatest action in reconciling us to himself. That's where we go. That's what he wants. That's why it's so important. 
for you to acknowledge his activity in your life, that he's working for good, despite this or that. He's working for good. And for you to find those things, notice them, you will overcome your other gods. Because as I focused on the good things about my family going together and I minimized the fact that we were late, it diminished that God that I have that says I have to have my way. That God that would cause me to punish anyone who holds me up when I said this is what we want to do. Right? When I focus on the good with my wife in the Van Gogh exhibit and minimize the soaking feet and the soaking wet shoes and socks and rain, I minimize that same God that threatens and tempts me to say, I've got to have it my way. When I focus on the fact that my child learned to ride SEPTA and can now go on his own, despite the fact that I then wasted money on a weekly pass and didn't cancel the auto load and paid another one, I minimize that God that would say, money is more important. This this is such a huge thing. If you will take what's in your life, the things and people, and consider and search and root down to find the good and own, take a moment, say, yeah, despite this or that, those were the tinges to it, I still have this thing. And you verbalize it. Thank God. Don't just write it down and say, thank you. Like, thank Him. Thank Him. Make sure you say thank you, God, for this fill-in-the-blank. It will have a transforming effect on your life because that is exactly what God wants. When He says, have no other gods, He says, make me. Notice me and my activity. Put me at the center of your life. More important than your money or your time or your health, or your leaders, or a pandemic, or death, all of those things, God would say, put me there. Now imagine if we did that. Imagine if we became a force in the world recognizing redemptive things. Waiting in the checkout line, right? Somebody cuts you off, jumps in front of you. How could you be redemptive in that? Somebody cuts you off on the highway. How could you be redemptive? What is good in it? What can you thank God for? those things and think about what if we became that kind of a redemptive people where we are, we are not only overcoming the other gods in our life, but, but we are showing the world what it is 
to believe truly and from the depths of our heart that God is not only above and powerful and higher than all, but He is near in this moment, working in this moment. It would, it would transform your attitude, your outlook. It would transform your community. Because the, it would be so obvious, right, that you're not doing this on your own. That in fact, this God is so powerful that He could change you. He could change me. That He could make us a people who when we suffer, bless. Of when we are falsely accused, we forgive. When we struggle, we look for help. Can you imagine if we were that kind of a people? So you can do that. There's a couple easy ways. This week, try to find people to thank. Someone holds the door for you. You know, the, the, the clerk at the checkout counter bags up the groceries fast. Say thank you. Do something nice to show appreciation to somebody. Uh, make a list of the people and things that you are thankful for and pray thanking God for them. Consider your family, your friends, your coworkers, your responsibilities, your fun activities. Uh, think about nature, work, your neighborhood, your emotions, your education, your mind, your will, books, news. Write down whatever comes to mind. Just spend maybe five minutes in the morning or at night before you go to bed when it's quiet and just consider and reflect on those things and then thank God for it specifically that He would give you such a gift. Because that's what He wants first of all. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank You that You, you are the the focus of what it means for us to understand a God who could be above, powerful, providing meaning and purpose, and also a God who is near, personal, relational, redeemer and savior. Become more in our hearts and lives. Grow in us, Lord, this attitude of, of gratitude, this thankfulness that the other gods in our lives would lose power and You would give more life. Would You work that in me, in us, for our good and for Your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.